Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Energy Department's number one data challenge. We tend to make data inaccessible to people. Um, you know, I've certainly seen this in other places where regulations make data inaccessible because these people see this data and these people see that data and these other people see that data and you can't put it together because then no one can look at it. And the dictionary definition of digital transformation. Digital transformation is only partly about the technology. It requires a culture that, that encourages innovation, is agile, embraces experimentation, accepts risk and tolerates smart failure in the pursuit of real transformation. It's Tuesday, April 26, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Department has its first chief digital and artificial intelligence officer in place. Craig Martell joins the Pentagon from Lyft, the ride-sharing app. He was the head of machine learning there. He's also worked in machine learning and AI jobs at Dropbox and LinkedIn. The Department of Veterans Affairs is on track with its financial management business transformation, according to the Government Accountability Office. GAO says the agency is following four out of seven change management leading practices and partially following the other three. You can learn more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. IT leaders from CISA and HHS headline the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference on May 19th. It's happening at the International Spy Museum in downtown D.C. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal agencies are spreading data literacy beyond the data and technology workforce. They're starting programs for people in all types of jobs and all levels across agencies. At the Cloudera Government Forum 2022, my FedScoop colleague Billy Mitchell hosted Ann Duncan, the Chief Information Officer at the Energy Department, and Paul Puckett, the Director of the Army's Enterprise Cloud Management Agency, in a conversation about data. In this highlight of that conversation, Ann Duncan says making data of different classifications available and usable is one of her agency's biggest challenges. And obviously, you know, we've got this barrier between the classified and unclassified data, um, which we're not going to cross uh, unless we go through the right processes. But even if you just take a look at the unclassified data, um, if people all over, we've got 17 national labs, um, we've got DOE headquarters, we've got people all over the organization doing work, and, and much of this uh, overlaps or connects uh, and and the, the trick is to find ways to share information across the organization um, so that people know what we have, right? We're, we're you know, I've, I've had roles where we think we can bring our data together in Data Lake and share it. You know, we're never going to share our data in a big data lake at DOE. Um, but what we can do is make sure that we that we can catalog and understand what data we have in various areas. Um, you know, whether that's uh, information about, uh, you know, quantum computing, information about cyber defense, uh, you know, information about climate, whatever we're, we're pulling together research on or working in a space, um, trying to understand across DOE what that is. And, and obviously, um, you know, we've taken, I've taken a big step in that direction last week as we brought on a chief data officer finally after over a year. Um, Congratulations. Yes, yeah. Um, I want to thank Emery. Uh, for being willing to make the change uh, to move over to the chief data officer role, uh, you know he had a 
he, he although he does get the the joy of having a job without a bunch of people working for him. So it's a pretty good SES job. Um, so uh, so that having a day, having a chief data officer in place will help us to be able to start building the structures and the governance we need to really pull that data together, um, or at least to pull our understanding of that data together, because that's really what's about an organization like DOE is just understanding what you have. Paul, very different department on your side, but I'm, I'm sure similar challenges in terms of the sprawling complexity of the Department of the Army. Tell us about your challenges there in terms of taking stock, knowing what you have, and then using good data governance to, to make sure you're, you have that data sharing, that, that data security and, and such. So uh, November of 2019, the Army started on the journey of trying to see the data that we have. Uh, so much of our challenge is actually the discoverability of data, like our ability to actually see, like, what do we at, at the very least have? Even if I have a question, I have to know kind of what I have today and maybe where I'm trying to fill the gaps. And so we let out a data and cloud execution order uh, that essentially said, hey, everyone start to self-report the systems and the data sets that you have. Um, really, that was kind of the step one, if you will. The, the reality is in charge, we don't have the people that actually even understand how to start that journey. Um, but part of putting it out there was to say, hey, this is the journey we're about to go on. Uh, these are the challenges that we think we have in front of us. And then these are the things that we need to start to understand about our data in order to really uh, simplify our architectures, uh, get rid of a whole bunch of duplicative and stale data, and start to feed into the world where we see this value of uh, our ability to leverage machines to be able to kind of uh, crawl our data for us and start to kind of help drive better insights to then uh, make better use of people's time when it comes to the questions that we have and how we might uh, solve those challenges. So really step one was starting to just catalog our data. Uh, we blessed an initiative out of the Office of Business Transformation with the Enterprise Data Services Catalog. Um, and then we started on this journey saying, hey, the, the different systems and data sets that you have, can we start to map out how data is actually moving across these systems? Uh, and where systems are looking at other systems for authoritative data sets, or perhaps where they're uh, creating stale data. Uh, and, and that that opportunity to visualize, you know, where some of the, the duplication of effort or the swivel chairs, you know, of humans that are interacting with these two systems um, uh, are really kind of filling the gap is ways for us to then start to drive better automation and how we uh, build system to system interfaces in a more open architecture. Uh, and that led into a memorandum that the Secretary of the Army at the time signed called the Data Services Requirements uh, Memorandum that starts to get to a number of the thou shalts for existing systems as well as new initiatives that say, hey, you know, when it comes to data and data sets, you're not gonna start to build these, you know, very custom point-to-point -point interfaces for the systems you think you need to exchange data with. What you're gonna to start to do is you're gonna to start to standardize in a more open format uh, that is externally accessible by any system. Uh, so rather than planning for a future where these two systems need to chat and all of a sudden tomorrow happens and I realize I needed a third, is starting to design systems in this more open architecture. And that led into our initiative around our API management platform, uh, which is now in production and online and going through some of those uh, first primary use cases to tease out uh, what data governance of system to system, you know, open exchanges through an application programming interface looks like uh, so that we can start to then, you know, press that across the rest of the army to say, hey, get rid of the duplicative data, start to call in the authoritative system and start to eliminate the, the humans in the loop. And to enable on that journey, why you've got the, the cloud dude up here talking is, there's no way in the world for us to presuppose all of that compute and storage to go on that journey, buy it up front and go deploy it in a data center. And so the ability to have on-demand compute and storage to 
go on that journey as we start to modernize these systems, um, say systems that are currently today on-premise and there's an, uh, an additional capability or service that we need, how we can actually have the digital infrastructure to allow us to bring up that compute and storage as quickly as possible, deliver uh, you know, kind of that broker of data, if you will, and start to then facilitate better open exchange uh, of information. Uh, and so I see this world growing. Uh, we've got a few different data platforms across the Army today, but each one was built specifically around a data set or a specific mission. Um, and so how we truly democratize data, I see, is that we start to move into a bit more of the common services of data governance and data management um, that allows us to essentially, you know, get every single soldier, every single data analyst, every single data engineer out there across the Army trained up and actually uh, tasked with starting to democratize our data and, and then for us to invest in those really important systems that allows us to make uh, better inferences of data, uh, make better you know, decisions from data uh, that then drive that greater command and control initiative across the Army and then feeding into uh, JADC2 as well. That's great. Ann mentioned highly regulated data that she deals with. I know you deal with highly sensitive national security data on your side. Does that complicate things at all in terms of a different data governance structure or just being more secure and careful with that? How, do, how does that add to the challenge of wrangling that up? Well, I'd say yes and no. I think one of the biggest challenges we have is actually uh, understanding our data classification in the first place. Um, too often, people that don't actually understand all, uh, all of the complexities and kind of nuances of their data sets classify at the highest common denominator, right? Like, ah, I don't even know. So everything, and, and you see this quite often in the unclassified side, everything is impact level five. And I was like, eh, but is it? Um, and oftentimes it's how we design our systems that uh, broker the discoverability and usability of that data um, is we're not actually tagging data or making it so that the actual uh, credentials that humans or other machines present to make calls for data um, have any of the, the attributes that allows us to kind of deliver that you know, least common denominator of uh, least privilege when it comes to accessing data. And so without those foundational capabilities, uh, people are left to their own kind of creativity and oftentimes the, the complexity to go and build that into a system just for that system can be challenging. And so people classify it the highest thing, create very open systems. Um, uh, and essentially it leads to, I think, high classification, overclassification of data. Well, that's a challenge now as we start to move into this world of a zero trust architecture, uh, where people are talking about role-based and attributes-based access controls that means that we, the attributes of data and the attributes of people right, need to be brokered by a centralized service. And that's where you see ICANN becoming such a central discussion in this world of zero trust uh, and getting after our data is the way that we present credentials and you know, human that have attributes around the attributes of data, having systems that can understand that and broker uh, that connectivity is really quite challenging. Um, and so now, you know, we're in this massive, well, what data do you actually have is a big data reclassification issue, a big system redesign issue, uh, a big press towards more enterprise common services. Um, and, and I think that that's, and that's not just Army specific, that's anyone with any data set uh, is going to have that journey and that challenge. And, and where we're being, I think, quite thoughtful is we're not hitting the easy button up front. We're saying, no, let's actually go through this work. Because uh, in order for us to truly move at the speed that we need to with this, with the rate that we're creating data, uh, we really need to have that nuance. And you chuckled, you nodded. Tell me more about your side of this at the Department of Energy. High re highly regulated data sets, lots of different labs. What are your challenges that you're facing? Yeah, so the, the, the challenge with the classified and all the unclassified 
levels of data control um, is that we do have the exact same problem that Paul described is that we tend to make data inaccessible to people. Um, you know, I've certainly seen this in other places where regulations make data inaccessible because these people see this data and these people see that data and these other people see that data and you can't put it together because then no one can look at it because no one has the permission to look at it. Um, so when we when we overclassify data or, or we or we um, say it's you know more restricted than it needs to be, um, it makes it more difficult to share. You know, we we struggle when you talk about cybersecurity um, with and we just actually worked out some some really great arrangements to be able to take some things that 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 we can declassify maybe indicators for example you've got some information that's classified we can declassify the indicators compromise and share those out with the organization so that while the 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 initial issue remains classified we're able to share information people need to defend the organization um so and but if we can't but if we over if we over regulate unclassified data uh, we can't share it through the organization so we really, you know, I think all organizations, I mean, I'm working in the private sector, I saw this too, it's not just a government problem. We over-restrict data. We worry about who's going to get our data and we over-restrict it and then we make it less useful to the organization. So if, I, if I'm one national lab and I'm trying to hold tight on my data, um, then that keeps it away from these other labs who are doing similar research. So we have to have, to have that least privilege, have to have that lowest uh, classification level, lowest... Um, uh, security level in order to make data more usable and shareable. It's absolutely a challenge across all organizations. Ann Duncan, the CIO at the Energy Department, along with Paul Puckett, Director of the Army's Enterprise Cloud Management Agency. They were part of a conversation at the Cloudera Government Forum 2022 that FedScoop's Billy Mitchell hosted. You can find a link to watch the video of that presentation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Thursday's show, an inside look at the president's management agenda. The Associate Director of Performance and Personnel Management at the Office of Management and Budget, Pam Coleman, is on Thursday's show. You can listen Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Digital Innovation Directorate at the Central Intelligence Agency is into its seventh year now. The directorate's original goal was to offer digital and cyber tools to CIA employees all over the world. Jennifer Eubank is Deputy Director for Digital Innovation at the CIA. At the VMware Public Sector Innovation Summit, she laid out today's cyber challenge for the intelligence community. Foreign states today, and it's no surprise to this group, I understand, but foreign states today are using cyber for a variety of malign purposes. They're stealing our intellectual property, manipulating foreign opinion and populations, and attempting to undermine governments. China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea remain the primary actors on this digital landscape, the primary malign actors, I would say. But more recently, criminal cyberware, uh, cyber ransomware actors have been uh, kind of joining this group of threats that we face in the digital landscape. So let's take the example of Russia, which remains a top cyber threat. It has unleashed increasingly sophisticated espionage, influence, and attack capabilities in recent years. The Russians consider cyber attacks an acceptable tool for deterring adversaries and prosecuting conflicts, something that has been on really vivid display in the recent conflict in Ukraine. 
They view large-scale and critically indiscriminate cyber intrusions as routine business, as we saw in last year's solar winds intrusion. And they view U.S. elections as an opportunity, an opportunity for malign influence as part of a broader foreign policy strategy. These and plenty of other examples are proof as if we needed it, that U.S. private and government networks remain firmly in Moscow's crosshairs. Looking more broadly at the digital landscape, Russia's aspirations for artificial intelligence should also give us pause. Russian President Vladimir Putin himself once declared that whoever becomes the leader in this sphere will become ruler of the world. So we know that Russia is also working on advanced weapons systems that will integrate artificial intelligence in their control systems, which is perhaps one aspect of their own digital transformation. And when I, I view this against the backdrop of Russia's aggression towards her neighbors, hostility toward Western democratic ideals, and grand aspirations to regain some false lost glory of the Soviet period, well, AI and advanced cyber capabilities in the hand of this Russian government are problematic. And while Russia may be our most urgent challenge, we read about it every day, China is our most strategic challenge and a formidable player in the digital underworld. The Chinese government views its competition with the West as a zero-sum game, where China's rise must come at the expense of America's decline. That ambition has fueled brazen, literally brazen cyber aggression in recent years, such that China now presents the broadest, most active, most persistent, most pervasive cyber espionage threat to US government and private sector networks. China's systemic, I would say, you know, industrial level theft of our intellectual property and personal information is shameless and unrelenting and part of a concerted and deliberate campaign to chip away at our prosperity and undermine our economic might. So looking beyond the cyber arena, China also aims to achieve world dominance in the field of artificial intelligence by the year 2030. And they have a whole of government program and they're making very rapid progress. What were once just you know, dystopian predictions about a future surveillance state are a daily reality now. China now leads the world in applying surveillance and censorship to monitor its population and suppress dissent, and often to devastating effect. One has only to think about you know, the tragedy of internment camps in Xinjiang province, or the rapid, shockingly rapid degradation of freedom in Hong Kong to understand where this version of digital authoritarianism is leading. So I'll admit, that's an admittedly you know, dark introduction uh, to digital innovation as seen through the lens of a foreign intelligence service. Thankfully, you know, innovation, adaptation, and optimism are encoded into the very DNA of our organization. From our earliest days, and notwithstanding our, our deep roots as a human intelligence or, or human organization, the complexity and risk involved in our business, has com they've compelled us to seek complementary means of intelligence collection. Imagery, electronic signals, open source media, lots of other examples. These were all examples of first, innovation, and then second, integration, where we synthesize all these different types of information to inform the analytic judgments that we share with policymakers. Partnerships are a third critical aspect of CIA's 
you know, agility uh, in this intelligence landscape. Partnerships with foreign governments, with US government partners, with US national security partners, and really importantly, with US industry. And so it was that just over six years ago, CIA launched a really intensive internal review to consider how it would promote greater integration, greater partnerships, ultimately greater innovation in recognition of the growing complexity of our intelligence mission. That study resulted in the creation of the Directorate of Digital Innovation, the part of the organization I now have the honor of leading. And it was a move to sort of re-engineer um, the enterprise, the intelligence enterprise, to address these growing challenges in the digital domain and to find these new digital capabilities and leverage them for our mission. So CIA had at the time already begun its cloud journey. So we had a basic foundation in place for our digital innovation. But it was only with the integration of, of data management, data science, artificial intelligence and machine learning, cyber collection and analysis, open source collection, and ultimately cybersecurity, all under one organization with an overarching digital strategy that the word innovation truly came to life. Bringing together our chief information officer, our chief information security officer, and our chief data officer, a team we refer to as our digital C-suite, was one of the most powerful moves in our digital innovation, as it forced an alignment of strategy and programs through the entire digital technology stack, advancing our strategy, I would say, in a more holistic and integrated fashion. In this world of emerging technology, I do offer one caution, at least you know, based on CIA's experience and perspectives, and every organization is going to have a different experience. But I would assert that it would be a mistake to think about this second machine age and digital transformation as some form of, I don't know, fancy IT modernization. Elastic cloud computing, big data, the internet of things, the advent of artificial intelligence and machine learning, these things are transforming daily life in America and our intelligence mission with it. We now live in this world of ubiquitous sensing and a literally exponential increase in volume and variety of data. But data is not information, and information is not insight. So how do we turn all these ones and zeros into valuable insights and do so you know, at scale, and at the speed of our incredibly challenging mission. Well, machines. I mean, we must learn to partner with machines, leveraging automation and artificial intelligence to help us burn through these haystacks of information to reveal those needles of exquisite insight. And for those who might fear, you know, a HAL 9000 moment, uh, and I, I it's dark out there, so I can't tell if there are young people who don't know the reference. But if you don't, I encourage you to see 2001 A Space Odyssey, a classic by Stanley Kubrick. Um, at CIA, machines will never replace people. What they will do, however, is automate labor-intensive tasks, extract insights from mountains of information, and then tee up items for human review and decision. While we speak about CIA's digital transformation in terms of technology, and, and you know, rightly so, there are many other supporting changes that have been critical to our success. Deploying digital capabilities without a workforce to leverage them would be, let's face it, pointless. So we created DDI University 
to provide training and education to lift the overall digital acumen of the CIA as a whole. Policies, and we were just hearing reference to this earlier, policies to security accreditation, data management, contract acquisitions, and in our area, even ethics and artificial intelligence, all of that needed to change in support of CIA's evolving mission and increasing reliance on digital technologies. We needed to adopt agile techniques in our technology development and deployment. And importantly, digital innovation placed an emphasis on partnerships with the US private sector, making this new directorate that I lead arguably the most external facing part of the agency. For CIA, all of that was innovation, not just of technology, but our culture. Unfortunately, not everyone has been so successful on this journey. I think business literature is replete with examples of companies which failed to transform as the digital revolution unfolded. Indeed, the names of these companies have become shorthand for such failure. If I say blockbuster, we know what that means, right? It speaks to the fate of any company that fails to innovate in a hyper-competitive, data-driven digital world. And Kodak, well, we recognize the fate of a, a legendary company that in fact did innovate, but they did not recognize how the digital revolution was changing, not just products, but our preferences, our habits, and even our culture. These stories and many others, in a way, reflect the crossroads that we in the intelligence community have reached today. Will we fail to leverage the opportunities represented by digital innovation? Will we fail to recognize how the very world itself is changing with this fourth industrial revolution? Will we be so slow to adapt that we are left behind, gradually fading into irrelevance? Well, I have, my emphatic answer is no, because we've actually learned a great deal on this journey about technology, about our culture, about our organization, about all of this. So first, in a world where it is increasingly difficult to uncover, to reveal real secrets, our competitiveness as an intelligence service will depend on how fast, relative to our adversaries, we leverage the digital domain to our advantage. Second, for every risk we face with an emerging technology, there are also tremendous opportunities. Don't forget we're an organization that wears both the white hat and the black hat. <laughs> we need only look at the problem from a new perspective. Third, we must never think or never be satisfied with matching our adversaries in the digital landscape. We must aim to, to outpace them, to keep innovating, to keep moving, so as to maintain a strategic advantage. And fourth, digital transformation is only partly about the technology. It requires a culture that, that encourages innovation, is agile, embraces experimentation, accepts risk, and tolerates smart failure in the pursuit of real transformation. And finally, just as organizations need to leverage digital transformation, you know, people need to innovate themselves. And I'm here as you know, exhibit A of that. I'm a child of the 60s, and the last coding class I took was involved Fortran punch cards and a computer center. And so, trust me, if I can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> At this point in CIA's journey, digital innovation has transformed in a truly profound way how the agency conducts its work. But innovation is a journey. It is not a destination. 
And we've learned a great deal over the course of our 75-year history. What we've learned is that we really only have three choices as the world around us is changing. We can do nothing, I suppose, which in an evolving digital landscape means we are immediately following behind. We can react, I suppose, but we will always deliver too little, just a little too late. These first two options will lead, you know, inevitably, slowly perhaps, but inevitably, to failure and obsolescence, much to the detriment of our national security, in my opinion. The third and only realistic option is to innovate, to take risks, to experiment, fail fast, iterate, and ultimately innovate. And digital transformation has enabled all of that for CIA. We at CIA do not have the luxury of sitting idly by as blind state actors in Moscow, Beijing, and you name your, your capital, um, accelerate their own digital transformation to advance their global aspirations. Their use of cyber warfare and their goals with artificial intelligence represent just, just two threats among many others that we don't have time to talk about to the national security interests of the United States and our allies around the globe. Indeed, in my line of business, it is innovate or perish. Thank you all very much. Jennifer Eubank, Deputy Director for Digital Innovation at the CIA. You can find a link to watch her entire presentation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the program every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. And if you really like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the Daily Scoop Podcast. It's a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington. DC. James Mahoney helps me put it together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.